right, well, I started a new series last week um, called Building a Firm Foundation, and we're going to do part two of that today. So get ready, open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, which if you're just getting familiar with your Bible, it's kind of toward the very end, Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to read, as you see there on the screen, verses 12 through 14 in chapter 5, and then the first two verses of chapter 6. So go ahead and be turning there, if you will. And when you find Hebrews 5, would you go ahead and stand up with me again, and let's honor the reading of God's Word among His people. Praise God. Everybody there? All right, here we go. Verse 12. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil." Chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. Everybody say maturity. maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of, faith, and, and of faith in God, instructions about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Praise God. Well, as I told you last week, um, the last week was an introductory teaching to the series. And we're going to talk about six crucial beliefs for building unshakable faith. So sometimes we need to go back to the basics and revisit the basics because a lot of times um, people come to the Lord and they're never told or taught the fundamentals and the basics of the faith. And therefore they go on and they, they walk with the Lord and, and they have a faulty foundation because they weren't taught the basics. So sometimes they find themselves really struggling in various areas of their lives, and then sometimes they even shipwreck their faith because, again, they never mastered the basics. So that's what this series is all about, the six crucial beliefs that you have to master in order to go on to understand the deeper things of God. And that passage that we just read talks about those six crucial beliefs, the first one of which is repentance, and we're going to talk about that today. Before we get there to the, the, the topic of repentance, I want to just begin this teaching um, by telling you a, a, about a building that we toured some years ago. I think this was, I don't know, maybe two or three, maybe four summers ago, the way time flies. Donna and I have a, uh, an anniversary. Our wedding anniversary is very close to our daughter Hannah and her husband. So um, they're just, what, a few days apart. And so we spent um, our anniversaries together one time in Indianapolis, and we toured the Capitol building in Indianapolis. And let me tell you, that is a grand structure. Have any, has anybody here toured the Capitol building in Indy? Two of you? Really, three of you. Okay, so wow, not that many. Well, um, again, if you get a chance to do that, uh, tour that, because what a grand building that is. Um, and we learned that wherever possible, Materials from Indiana were used in the construction of that building. So all the doors in the Capitol building in Indianapolis were made out of Indiana oak. And um, throughout the structure, Indiana limestone was also used. 
So uh, we looked around that place in awe just because it is so massive and majestic looking. But do you know what we did not appreciate about that building? The foundation. Why? Because you can't see the foundation. Uh, But without that foundation, the rest of the structure could not have endured this long. And we wouldn't be able to appreciate any of it right now. Is that correct? And that building, by the way, has stood the test of time since 1888 was when the construction was completed. Now, here's a little historical factoid you might enjoy. The previous Indiana State House was condemned in 1877. Anybody want to take a guess why it was condemned? Exactly. Now, did you know that, or are you just guessing because of what I was just talking about? Uh, You don't have to answer that question. Yeah, yeah, it had a faulty foundation. And because of that, the building became unstable, and they had to condemn it. Now, here's a, a parallel truth. Here's a parallel spiritual truth this morning that we need to kind of put in our back pockets. See, a faulty foundation will prove to be fatal to the structure of a building over time. And a faulty spiritual foundation will prove to be faulty to the individual or prove to be fatal over time. So a a faulty spiritual foundation will prove to be fatal over time. So for the new Capitol building, um, the commissioners and the architect who oversaw that particular project determined to not make the same mistakes that were made with the previous Indiana State House. So guess what they did? They required that it be built upon a solid foundation. And they built it in the shape of a cross. And it has stood for more than 130 years and counting. Now, how many people in the room have worked in masonry? Anybody here has worked in masonry? No one? Really? Okay, me either. So I was going to ask you, does anybody know that um, you know, when you work with bricks and masonry, the mud that you use to put those bricks together, so I understand, again, I'm not a mason, I've never worked in, in masonry, but so I understand that if you don't have the mixture of that mud just right, then it can be weak and crumble over time. Folks, listen, when believers don't have a proper foundation laid, when they have a mixture of truth with error, that mixture can not only prevent them from bearing much fruit later in their lives, but can also pull them so far off course that eventually they end up in spiritual shipwreck in various parts of their lives. And folks, I've seen people in my charismatic background, my charismatic and Pentecostal background, I've seen people who are seemingly some of the most passionate Christians that you've ever seen because they are the ones oftentimes who raise their hands the highest and bow the lowest and and sing the loudest. But in some of those cases, some of those same people weren't even in church at all after a few years. And why is that? Because in many of those cases, they base their relationship with God on emotion first and the Word of God secondly. And when the emotion could not be sustained, they flamed out. I've seen that more times than I can count. The Word of God has to be our foundation. 
So I want to read to you something that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 3.10, the Apostle Paul said this, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. So I want to tell each one of you this morning that each of you is a foundation layer. See, helping to lay the foundation of the gospel was God's call on the Apostle Paul's life. Uh, the Apostle Paul here was saying, in essence, you know, I planted, I started, I broke ground, I laid the foundation. That was my grace. But now someone else is building upon the foundation that I laid. So again, some of you are foundation layers just like the Apostle Paul. You are a foundation layer in your family. You're building a new generation of Christ followers in your family. And others will come in behind you and build upon that foundation. Others of you are foundation layers in the ministry. And as a matter of fact, there's several of you in the room right now who were in this church when it was still meeting in our living room. You've worked alongside Donna and myself, and, and uh, now others are coming along who will begin to build upon that foundation. So I want to take just, just a little break here in, in my commentary and recognize some of the foundation layers in our church. And the first uh, couple that I want to recognize is Mark and Julie Suvercroup. Wave, Mark and Julie, and in the back there. Uh, they were with us when we were still meeting in our living room. So they were there right from the very beginning. So they are one of our, our uh, primary foundation layers. And then, uh, of course, our family, you know, Henry Gay, uh, Donna's father, my father-in-law. Raise your hand, Henry. He was there at the very beginning as well, as was the members of my immediate family, uh, Drew, who was next to his papaw there, and, and Hannah. Now, Noah was in, wasn't in the picture uh, then, but Hannah is one of our foundation layers, obviously, and she works alongside us and has, and now Noah, her husband, my son-in-law, has come along to continue to uh, contribute to this work. So we have some foundation layers here among us this morning, but then there's others who came along afterward who are still helping us to build not only the foundation, but also above the foundation. And so Steve and Pam in the back of the room there against the wall, they're some of our primary uh, foundation layers, even though they weren't here at the very beginning. They, they are very, they've been helping us so profoundly for such a long time. We appreciate them so much. Doug and Sharon Bringle have been here for a, a long, long time. They've helped us to lay this foundation as well as Jack and Carrie Wharton. So Jack and Carrie, uh, wave your hands. Uh, where's, I know, where's Sharon? Where's Sharon still in there? Sharon and Doug's over here. Come on, guys. What, what, what's up? You're not sitting together this morning? I'm, I'm just kidding. So they have all been important parts of laying this foundation. Now, back to this passage for a moment with the Apostle Paul. Notice that Paul didn't seem disturbed that someone else would build upon and continue building upon the foundation that he laid. You know, that's a normal part of construction, right? Someone lays a foundation, others come alongside and after that and they continue to build. So uh, someone else he realized would carry on his work when he was gone. And the same will be true with this church. At some point, I'm going to have to lay this work aside. And when I do, someone else will continue building on it and probably continue to improve upon it. Uh, but listen, foundation layers. I have a word for you this morning. Even when we have to lay our work aside, I'm convinced that in heaven, 
there is a, a record of the foundation layers who God used to raise up a new work for his kingdom. So be encouraged, foundation layers. You may not even see in this lifetime what God is doing with you and through you where your family is concerned or where the ministry is concerned. You may not even see it in this lifetime. But rest assured there's a reward laid up in heaven for those who did the heavy lifting of laying the foundation in the early years. Praise God. And that's part of the reason why I believe, by the way, that God wanted us to do this series on building a firm foundation because he wants to make sure that this work is able to stand the test of time and that it is built on a solid foundation of good Bible doctrine and not on the shifting sands of emotion or cultural change. You believe that? Praise God. All right, so then, again... Our, our focus in this series is the six crucial beliefs for constructing unshakable faith. And the first crucial belief that we read in our master text was repentance from dead works. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. Andy, I know what repentance is. But do you? See, I found that many churchgoers today don't even really know what that means as evidenced by their lifestyles. So let me define for you what repentance is. First of all, here's a great quote by theologian and pastor Rick Renner who says, Repentance is the birth canal through which people enter the kingdom of God. Isn't that a great way to put it? And I'm going to give you some, uh, again, some Greek today. And that word that was translated into English as repent is the word metaneo. And it's a compound of two Greek words, actually, meta and naus. And meta means a turn or a change, and naus refers to the mind. A turn or a change, and then the mind. So that's an important distinction right there. So then, metaneo, or repentance, refers to a change of mind or a complete conversion. A complete conversion. So the Greek word there for repentance refers to a change of direction, a new course, a completely altered view of life or behavior. It refers to a conversion so deep, folks, that it results in a total transformation, not just a little partial one, but a total transformation, wholly affecting every part of a person's life. Nothing held back from God. That's what repentance is. You hold nothing back from God. You don't keep little dark corners. Oh, this is my little dark corner, and then the rest belongs to God. No, it all belongs to God. When you repent, because that's what repentance is. It's a total conversion affecting every part of your life. Let's go back to the screen and and look again at that word nous, which uh, refers to the mind, because I think this is an important uh, point here this morning in understanding what repentance really is. Again, that word refers to the mind, and that's very significant when it comes to repentance because uh, it tells us that repentance lies in the mind, not the emotions. Uh Uh-oh. We're going to go somewhere with this. In fact, the word translated into English as repent, in that word, 
in the, the broader and deeper definition in the Greek of that word repent, metaneo, there is not a hint of emotion. Now, repentance can be accompanied by emotion uh, oftentimes, and, and that is often the case, by the way, but emotion is not required for repentance to take place. You know, I remember the day that I decided that I was going to leave my old life behind and, and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was a spring day in 1992, and I wasn't in a church service when this happened. I was in my bedroom. There was no worship music playing, caressing my emotions, nothing like that. But I knew that the Lord had been working on me for a, a long time, and I was stiff-arming him for a long time. But I knew he was wooing me. I could tell, man, there was several things that happened. I knew God was talking to me. And one day in 1992, again, no music playing. I wasn't in a church service. I didn't have a near-death experience. Nothing like that. But I just decided, Lord, I'm tired of fighting you. I'm tired of this life that I've been living. And I'm ready to come home. So I, I knelt on a bedroom chair in my tiny little bedroom and I said, Lord, I, I've lived a very selfish, self-centered life, but if you can do anything with me, I'm ready to walk with you. And that was it. There was no goosebumps, no butterflies, no claps of thunder, and I didn't cry. But things were different from that day forward. I have never looked back from that day. So my point is, I realize that when a, a lot of people come to Christ, there is a lot of emotion accompanied with that experience. And I'm not against that. I'm just saying that's not required for repentance. That's what I'm getting at. You see, true repentance isn't about a fleeting emotion, folks, where you shed a few tears at a service, but then don't change. That's not repentance. You can cry a river of tears and go out and then not live any different, and you didn't repent. Repentance means changing, all right? And also, I should say this, that repentance isn't even just being sorry for past actions. Again, it does include that, but it's not confined to that. Uh, rather, repentance, real repentance, is a decision to change. It's a decision to walk with God. And its proof can be seen in a person's behavior. When a person complies, when, when a person's behavior complies with that decision. See, this is someone who makes a firm decision to change, deciding to be different, and of course, seeking the help of the Holy Spirit, of course, which we need, to live a life that's pleasing to God. And again, as evidence of that, since I just told you um, about my little conversion experience, I knew things were different because immediately some things changed. So uh, in my circle of friends, I, I was known as, I mean, in my circle of friends, we all had filthy mouths and, and you know, terrible senses of humor, and I kind of prided myself in the fact that, that I had the, the filthiest sense of humor and the, and the foulest mouth. I don't know why. It's just, the, it's just the perversion of Satan, that's all. But guess what? When I got saved, bam, immediately my mouth was redeemed. Immediately. Uh, the gone was that 
vile sense of humor. Gone was the cuss words and the swearing and all the profanity that used to usher out of my mouth. And that's why, you know, because God dealt with me like that, um, I just, can I say this? I, I know that there's a lot of cussing Christians out there now. I think they need to have their mouths redeemed. I just, that's what I, I think that you can't glorify God that way. Praise the Lord. Uh, I'll just throw this in here since I'm talking about this. The, the book of Ephesians chapter 4 tells us, Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for others to build them up in their time of need. Okay? So I, I don't even come close to little, even little white profanities. I, I just... You know, I want to glorify God with my mouth. Okay, anyway, that was, that was a little example. Now, other things, by the way, I had to work through. There were some things that had their hooks in me really, really deep that I had to work through uh, with the help of the Holy Spirit to get, the, get past those things and get those things out of my life. But I, I knew I was different immediately, even though there was no emotional, emotional response to my repentance. I knew things were different because, number one, I felt different. There was a, a lightness that came over me. It's like... I know things are going to be okay now. There was a lightness that came over me, and my mouth was completely different. And I also tried to hang out with some of my my buddies that I would hang out with before just because I wanted to make sure that I shared the gospel with them. But, man, it was like oil and water. I could not hang out with those guys anymore. They knew I was different. I knew I was different. I knew that oil and water don't mix, and our lives went completely in different directions. I had a best, best, best friend. that I mean, I love this guy. I mean, we did everything together. And we knew immediately that relationship changed immediately. So I knew I was different just because this guy that I, I love so much, man, we weren't we didn't click anymore. Immediately, we didn't click anymore. He knew it, and I knew it. Because he wanted to continue living the way that he lived, and I wanted to go a different direction, and so our lives did. So you see, if there's no change in behavior, folks, if one's life is not on a continual transformation into the image of Christ, then it's doubtful that repentance ever occurred, no matter what the person claims or how often they go to church. There's got to be a change. Now I want to give you another example of a, of a radical change from the time of repentance forward, and that's the story of uh, Nikki Cruz. Now they made a, a story about Nikki Cruz, and uh, that was back in what the 1970s, I think, when this movie was made, The Cross and the Switchblade. And The Cross and the Switchblade is about uh, an evangelist turned pastor later on, David Wilkerson, played by Pat Boone, there in the middle in that movie poster. And uh, Nikki Cruz was played by a very young Eric Estrada. So that, that you see him, uh, him there in that movie poster. But the story there is that <clears throat> David Wilkerson went into the heart of New York City, the rough streets of New York City, by himself and ministered to these gang members. And there was this one particular gang that uh, Nikki Cruz was the warlord of. And that's what he was. He was a warlord. He was, a, he was a murderous, violent criminal. And David Wilkerson was ministering to this gang by himself. You talk about bravery. And there was one particular young man in that gang that David Wilkerson thought, you know, he has a, a, a softer countenance about him. Maybe I can get through to him. 
But Nicky Cruz, the leader, the warlord, he's too hard. I, I can never, I'll never be able to get through to him. But yet, through the power of the Holy Spirit and David Wilkerson's, his, just his dedication to ministering to this gang, it was Nicky Cruz who came to Christ. And one day, Nicky, and you see it kind of in the, the uh, movie poster there to the right, he pulled out a switchblade and he put it against David Wilkerson's chest and he said, I will cut you into a thousand pieces. And David Wilkerson's famous response was, yes, you could do that, but every piece would still say, I love you. And Nicky Cruz in his testimony said that that was one of the breaking points. That was when the Holy Spirit really began to soften his heart to see the love of God in this man. And it was Nicky Cruz that came to Christ. And it was not just, uh, yeah, a little, a little conversion that didn't make that much of a change. Nicky Cruz, from that time forward, has been a heartbroken, passionate soul winner for Christ. There's a picture of him, a more recent picture of Nicky Cruz. Uh, the joy of the Lord is all over him, you see. And look at the crowd that he's preaching to in New York City. That former warlord, a former gang member, a murderous gang member, is now leading thousands of people to Christ. That's what repentance looks like. You change. You change. Hallelujah. Now, in understanding repentance, and, and again, I think so many people today don't really have a biblical understanding of what repentance is. I want to talk a, a little bit here for a moment about the difference between remorse versus repentance, because some people think they're the same thing, and that's not necessarily the case. And that's why some people think that they repent when actually they don't. So let's read out of Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5. It says of Judas here, <clears throat> Judas the betrayer, the one who betrayed Jesus and turned him over to the, the authorities. Let's read this, verse 3. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, Jesus had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Now, that word remorseful in that passage is Greek word metamelomai, and it means to regret. It means to regret. This word means to be filled with grief or profound sorrow because of what's been done. But this word really implies emotion only, not the mental decision to change. You see, Judas Iscariot did not repent. Had he made a decision to repent, he would have turned his life around. He did not make that decision, however, to turn his life around. He just was swallowed up in the regret for betraying Jesus and that emotional state led him to commit suicide. Had he truly repented, he would have begged Jesus and Father God for repentance or, or for forgiveness rather and then endeavored to change, right? So you see, regret for your actions, folks, does not necessarily mean You've repented. I want to say that again. Regret for your actions does not necessarily mean you've repented. 
Before I continue on that train of thought, this example just popped into my head. I know a gentleman <clears throat> who uh, was married once before, and he was unfaithful to his wife. And he was very remorseful for a long period of time. He, he, he punished himself by never allowing himself to get fully full whenever he ate. He always carried around a degree of hunger. That's how he felt he needed to punish himself. So he lost a bunch of weight. Well, uh, he got himself straightened up and back into church and, and um, got a better understanding of, of grace. And so he got married to another wonderful Christian woman and things seemed great for a while and several years went by and they just began to get comfortable. Be careful about getting too comfortable, folks, because they began to slip back and they began to get out of church and church was not a regular part of their life anymore and lo and behold, he does it again. And he commits adultery on his second wife, gets caught, and the last I heard, this gentleman is not in church at all. He's alone. He lives like somewhat of a hermit. His appearance is very disheveled now. Uh, so yes, he's remorseful, but he's not repentant because he's not even in church. He said, oh, I don't even believe that stuff anymore. Because sometimes in order to, to make yourself feel better for what you've done, you've got to reject the things that bring conviction into your life. Did you know that? That's how a lot of people live. In order to feel better about what they've done or what they are doing, they will push Jesus and the church and the Bible to the side to make them feel better about the way that they're living or what they've done. So this person is remorseful, but he's not repentant. That's why a lot of people, by the way, who are remorseful, but not repentant, that's why a lot of people can hate the way that they act, but they go right back to the, that same vomit over and over again because they haven't really rended their hearts and repented. That's what the Bible says in the book of Proverbs as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. Why is that? Well, because, first of all, you don't know the Word of God. You're not guided by that wisdom. But secondly, a lot of times people make the same mistakes over and over again because they've never really repented. All right? So let's then talk about the different kinds of repentance then. Well, the first kind of repentance is that initial repentance leading to salvation. That's obvious enough. This is the day that you decided to follow Jesus Christ. And please note that that kind of repentance, if it's genuine, uh, that kind of repentance that leads to salvation doesn't have to be repeated over and over again after that initial salvation experience. In other words, if you get saved and now you're walking with the Lord, but then one day you've got a, you have a bad day and you just blow your top in a fit of rage. You don't have to go back to the altar and get saved all over again. Okay? However, recognizing that sinful behavior and confessing it and renouncing it is also a form of repentance. Which leads me to my next point. The next kind of repentance is lifestyle repentance. Lifestyle repentance. If uh, you're making notes in your bulletin, I know all of you don't have the bulletin this morning, but if you're making notes in your bulletin, fill that in, lifestyle repentance. And this is the kind of repentance um, that um, should be continually working in your, in your life every day. Repentance is a lifestyle of continually being conformed 
into the image of Christ. Okay? It's acknowledging the sin that we recognize as we live from day to day. It's acknowledging the sin in our lives and seeking to turn away from those things. See, the initial experience of repentance that leads to salvation didn't make you immediately perfect, but it did make you forgiven. But see, here's where a lot of people don't understand true repentance. If that repentance was genuine, that initial experience will cause a person to be more and more aware of the subtle sins lurking in the heart and then deal with them appropriately. That's what grace does. Grace gives us the ability to change, to walk with God in a way that pleases Him. See, the very nature of repentance means that we can't come to God and then continue living the way that we did before. That's not repentance. Which leads me to the third kind of repentance, and that's false repentance. False repentance. See, folks, the reason that this subject is so important is because one of the biggest problems I see among churchgoers today is that many people think that just because they once got baptized and they now have a church home in their local church that their ticket to heaven is punched. But in observing their lifestyles, they're still no different than the rest of the world. And boy, that's really an epidemic in the church today. And as a matter of fact, uh, again, this is in your notes as well. I want to focus on this right here. If a person who comes to the Lord wishing to be, be saved is not willing to examine himself closely and turn away from his or her sin wherever it's found, he or she remains unconverted. And I've seen these experiences and, and seen these people before. I remember one of the guys that I used to run around with came to my church one day. I invited him to church and he came. And at the end of the service, he responded to an altar call. And man, did it ever look genuine. Because he literally raised his hands to heaven. Then when the pastor started praying over him, he hit his knees. And boy, did it seem convincing. But he didn't change. He didn't repent. He had an emotional experience when he was in the presence of God and his people. But he had no interest in changing. He did not repent. So people in that category, they're, even though they may, may have walked the aisle or got baptized, if they don't change, they are still children of darkness, regardless of how often they go to church, folks. See, we can't go with culture's idea of what walking with God looks like. We have to go back to this. The foundation of our faith is the Word of God. We have to base everything on what the Word of God says. And repentance is not an emotional experience only. Repentance is changing. Repentance is wanting to please God in every area of your life. Nothing held back. All right. I also want to talk about a phrase that was used in that master text where the Apostle Paul actually was not necessarily the Apostle Paul. We read out of Hebrews, and no one knows for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some people think it's the Apostle Paul, but no one really knows. Anyway, that point aside, our master text says um, one of those six crucial beliefs that we need to um, have a mastery of 
for building unshakable faith is repentance from dead works, is how it words it, repentance from dead works. And this refers to any work that produces spiritual death. You might write that down. Repentance from dead works is anything that, any work that produces spiritual death. And by the way, that doesn't necessarily have to mean a gross sin, some obvious gross sin. As a matter of fact, it could actually be a religious activity. Stay with me. A dead work could actually be a religious activity. See, there are religions and even denominations in the Christian world that teach that a person has to go through all kinds of rituals and religious activities to be close to God. And folks, listen, let me just say this really, really clearly here. If you are trusting in anything for your salvation other than simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, that is a dead work and it is not leading to new life. Okay? So good works, therefore, are a result of God's redemptive work in your life. But good works do not earn salvation. See, that's a fundamental doctrine right there that all of you should have a mastery of already. Okay? Good works are a result of God's redemptive work in your life, but good works do not earn salvation. Any effort to earn God's favor through good deeds is a dead work and will lead to spiritual bondage. Lead to spiritual bondage. All right. So that's why the Apostle Paul was so ardent, by the way, in his letter to the Galatian church. Because they were falling back into a deception that salvation was believing that it was a mixture of Jesus and certain Jewish rituals. And the Apostle Paul was agonized over the fact that they were turning away from the true gospel, which is Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. So let's talk about that for a moment. Again, I know I'm just giving you nuts and bolts this morning, just going back to some basics. I know that many of you already know this, but we're laying a a foundation here, right? We're foundation layers. Ephesians 2, 8 uh, through 10, most people can quote the first two verses in that passage, verses 8 and 9, but most people I know can't connect verse 10 to it, so we're going to do all three of them. So verse 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I'm just curious. Does anybody know what verse 10 says? That's what I thought. Okay, verse 10 is connected to this thought. All right. It says, for we are God's handiwork. Depending on what version you read, it may say workmanship. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So you see, the good works are a result of the faith, not the other way around. If you truly have faith, and you're walking in that faith, it will produce good works in your life, but good works don't produce faith. Okay? Faith produces good works. Is that clear enough? So you see that progression. When you memorize that passage, you ought to memorize verse 10 along with it because it's a connected thought. It's all a connected thought. All right. So I'm almost done here. But let me introduce you as we start to come to a close here in about 30 minutes or so. <clears throat> just, just kidding. 
Trying to throw in a little lightness there. Come on, work with me. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I'll be here all week. You know, at home, I think I'm hilarious, but my family doesn't. I'm entertained by myself more than anybody is. And I make a dad joke, and I crack up, and, you know, my family's like, Dad, you're not that funny. I entertain myself, though, so. Yeah. All right. So the four elements of true repentance. All right. Now, King David was a person who was under the old covenant, but he actually had a new covenant understanding of repentance and forgiveness. And um, in Psalm 32.5, David provides four elements of repentance that we're going to look at in detail here before we close. So it says this, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. By the way, if any of you ever are reading the scriptures and you come across that word selah, and you go, what in the world is that? That's a term that simply means to deeply contemplate. That's what that means. So if you're reading in the Psalms and you see that word appear, selah, that's what it means, to deeply mull over and to contemplate. Isn't that good? So just a little tip for you there. I won't charge you for that one. Uh, but again, there's four elements of repentance in that that I want to dissect here. So the first one is acknowledgement of sin. See, you cannot repent until you recognize the presence of evil in your heart. David said here, in essence, I was wrong. I messed up. And I need to change. See, that's repentance. Also in that passage, we see that another form of repentance or another element of true repentance is honesty with God. See, David said here, my iniquity I have not hidden. So when you come to God, don't try to make excuses or dress up your sin. you got to come clean with God. you got to come totally clean with God. The next one is confession of that sin. Verbalize the sin to God. This is important because by doing so, the very sound of what we've done coming out of our mouths helps us to understand the gravity of our sin. Have you ever been in the situation where you go to God and you're wanting to repent of your sin, but you have trouble even verbalizing it because it's so grotesque, you don't even want to state it in front of God. He already knows anyway. But by verbalizing it, the very sounding of what you've done coming out of your mouth will help you to understand the gravity of that sin. Praise God. Also, the fourth one, the fourth element of true repentance is, of course, the forgiveness of sin. And I th think the point here is that we need to appeal to the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. Because 1 John 1.9 says, when we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
And that's a glorious truth that we always need to keep in mind when we repent. Because if God doesn't hold those things against us any longer, why are we holding them against ourselves? There's great freedom in God's grace when we repent. So here's my last thought. And that's this. God will never leave you or forsake you when you walk with him. See, there is one difference between the way that David in his time understood grace and the way that we understand it this side of the cross. Uh, see, David said in Psalm 51:11, after he had sinned with Bathsheba and he was confessing his sin before God, he prayed, God, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. But we see in 2 Corinthians 1:22. It says, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set a seal of ownership on us, praise God, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Folks, listen, if you've come to Christ, if you've repented of your sins truly, and you're walking in God's truth, then you are his son you are his daughter. You're his child. And he promises to never leave you. The only way that you can be rid of God is if you leave him. And even having said that, even then, you're not totally free of him because he will pursue you. Like he pursued Jonah when he was running from God and went the other direction. He could not be free of God's presence. Just like when I was running from God and stiff-arming him all those years, he would not leave me alone. Praise God. So even if you run from him, he won't leave you alone. He'll continue to pursue you and woo you. It's only if you keep rejecting him until the day you die is when you're totally free of him. And you don't ever want to be there. You don't ever want to be there. See, if you stay close to his side, folks, you have his stamp of approval on you, his seal of ownership, and you are his. Praise God. Stand with me, if you will. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.